So uh, good morning, Crossroads. Some of you have been asking for more teaching time. I'm going to do that today. Hopefully I won't overload you. This month will be a focus on mission, mission in all its forms, local, international, vocational, professional. And uh, so for those of you who track, who tracks the church calendar here? Yeah, two people? (laughs) Okay, then I'm not even going to make that comment. No, we're starting with the resurrection in in an odd position here if you happen to be thinking about Lent. But since you're not thinking about Lent, it has no meaning. So um, the thing, thing that missions people like to remind us, it's not our mission, it's God's mission. And he allows us to partner with him in his work. We get to partner with Dad and be his apprentices. So pretty amazing. Shalom for a broken world. That's what the church is about. So the end of Jesus, the Jesus story in the Gospels, John 20 and 21, is the beginning of our story, the, the, the story of God's church, a people who have become literally a temple for the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to look at the climax of John's Gospel, in some ways the climax of all the Gospels. It's a chapter that's so rich in meaning, I'm just going to scrape the surface, but I'm hoping I'll give you a good sense of it. And we can't start there because we'd be starting at the end like opening a book in the middle. We need to go back to chapter 1 of John's gospel to start out in order to understand what John is trying to tell us in chapter 20. So I'm going to make you do a little bit of work today. Hang with me. John chapter 1 is fascinating. It's an intentional parallel. Next slide. Is that thing? Next slide. Can't get it. Let's see if I can get it now. No. Okay. I'll be asking for slides today. Okay. Intentional parallel to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 3. God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And there was evening. And there was morning, the first day. So in John 1, we get this parallel story, the backstory for Genesis 1. And then John 20 begins with this little phrase early on the first day of the week. As we just saw, on the first day, God created. And also on the first day of the week, Jesus rose in a brand new world and everything changed. So in John 20, by using this little phrase, on the first day, John is giving us a clue that this is a restoration story. It's a renewal of Eden. Paradise recovered, but beyond Eden, something completely new in the world. With the resurrection of Jesus, we go from old creation and inevitable death to new creation, restoration, life. Next slide. Revelation 21, verse 1 and 5 reads like this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. God is making all things new. So John 20 takes place shortly after the resurrection. It's the first public appearance of, you know, of Jesus with his disciples. The story we usually associate with Thomas in this chapter, which completely distracts us from the larger story going on here. So I love this particular passage. There's a lot going on. And the first thing to notice is a natural division that occurs. So in the very first verse of chapter 20, we read this. Early on the first day of the week. And then at the beginning of this second section, we hear that line again. On the evening of the first 
day of the week. And this structure, this repetition, is a clue to the meaning. John is a composer and he's writing a symphony and he's just used a musical phrase. Next slide. So start off with a short music lesson. This slide shows two four-bar phrases from Mozart, piano, sonata, and F. What is a musical phrase? One writer defines it like this. A musical phrase is a short section of a composition into which the music, whether vocal or instrumental, seems naturally to fall. And a second one. In Ballet Beyond Tradition, Anna Pakevska says this. Phrasing musicality is not slavishly following a musical phrase, but rather a prolonging or a shortening of the, of the physical action that serves to underscore the flow of the music. Okay, so it's a change in the physical action that serves to underscore the flow of the music or the story. So at the symphony a couple years back, Betty and I heard Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky, and through both performances there were distinct musical phrases. So first we would hear, da, 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 and then later we'd hear it again. And then after a length of time we'd hear it again, but with variations. So the entire performance of the composer could be summarized in that phrase. So in John, back in chapter 1, he gave us a musical phrase. He started with the story of creation. Next slide. He wrote, in the beginning was the word, and through him all things were made. And he was echoing an earlier phrase from Genesis 1. Because he wanted to underscore the flow of the story and then add these variations as the story was unfolding. And, and by writing the gospel that way, John could say to us that the story he's about to tell is a creation story. We're hearing verbal echoes in music and words and cadence that take us right back to Genesis 1. But this time the theme is much richer, there's more instruments playing. It starts out with a deep bass register of the clarinet, then the bassoon, then other instruments. It's not just a repeat of the first story. The creator himself came to earth as a man to rewrite the creation story. It's creation 2.0. Because the first one was broken. Adam and Eve rebelled. They started the planet and humanity in the wrong path. We needed a savior. Somebody who could sing the song clearly with perfect pitch put all the broken themes together, all the broken threads in the grand new theme. So now what John is doing here in chapter 20, he's pointing us back to Genesis 1. Cue the clarinets. God speaks his word and from nothing there's something. And in Jewish tradition, God commands the angels and they sing the world into being. So from Calvin Miller, the singer, in the beginning was the song of love. Alone in empty nothingness in space. It sang itself through vaulted halls above. Reached gently out to touch the Father's face. Next slide. Love sang the Spirit's song and mountains came. More melody and life began to grow. He sang of light and darkness fled in shame before our universe and embryo. So here in John 20 we're in a creation story. And like Jesus, at Jesus' resurrection there's a new creation and here in this chapter, the word is speaking again, speaking peace, literally shalom. And somehow in that word, that word of shalom, everything is becoming new. Now it helps here to remember a good kingdom theology. The gospel, Jesus tells us, is the good news of God's kingdom, God's reign. 
The old rabbis used to say, any prayer which fails to mention the kingdom of God is no prayer at all. God will rule on earth as he rules in heaven. That's our prayer. And we have many pictures of what this will look like in the Old Testament, this shalom, like Isaiah chapter 35. And in the prophet Isaiah, God's kingdom is coming in the future and has these ingredients. Next slide. It includes forgiveness of sins. Isaiah says, on that day, God will just blot out all your transgressions. It includes liberation of the captives. So those who are prisoners and in dungeons are going to come out and blink at the sun and be free. The deaf will hear. The blind will see. The lame will leap. And the dumb will shout for joy. There'll be a special shalom. Shalom is this massive biblical word that's used to summarize all God's good work and redemption. So Isaiah pictures a, a kingdom shalom so complete and so extreme that the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The snake and the little child will play together. And there will be secure homes and tranquil waters. And the dead will be raised. In fact, death will just be abolished. And so in, in Isaiah picturing this, as you can imagine, he's painting a picture of joy that is absolutely ecstatic. He talks about people being overtaken by joy. It's so ecstatic that the mountains start waving. The trees and the hills start singing. And new songs are heard all over the earth. It's a picture of the true Easter. And our knowledge is just a shadow. But in true Hebrew fashion, food and hospitality are so important in the East. Isaiah pictures this banquet to end all banquets where God will be the host. So it's a future like Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Next slide. Betty and I have this picture hanging in our living room. It's by a vineyard pastor named Rick Berry. So people come from the north and the south and the east and the west. And Isaiah says God will provide aged wine and tons of meat. So all these things are shalom. This is a picture of complete salvation, renewal, restoration. And as a result of this renewal, there's a totally new order. There will be a new people and a new nation with new bodies in a new city, in a new temple, in a new heaven, and a new earth. But then with that picture in mind, what's wrong with this picture in John 20? There's a weird contrast. The disciples have not gathered to celebrate that Jesus is risen. They're not partying. They're not dancing for joy. It says that the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. So instead of a party, instead of a banquet, they're hiding away. So Jesus, their friend and brother, the one who stilled storms and walked on water and raised dead people to life, has been exalted to the right hand of power and the disciples are hiding away. This is the group that's going to change the world? That's the contrast. And it brings another story to mind for me. It's a story of Gideon. His story is told in Judges 6 and there's so many parallels It's helpful just to compare the stories, put them side by side. So Judges 6, this is way, way back in biblical history. This is before King David. We're talking about around 1150 B.C. So this is before Israel had a king or an army, and they're really oppressed by the Midianites. So God raises up judges, a kind of warrior, prophet, priest class of people. Deborah was one of the first judges in the land, it says, had peace during her time. But in the story, she's gone. And things are not going well. So one day, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. And this would be like threshing wheat in a kitchen, which would be like throwing flour in the air. Don't try this when your wives are at home, men. 
What's really going on is that it's a really dangerous time with marauding bands of Midianites. So instead of threshing wheat in the open, Gideon is hiding. I'm going to try this again. Nope. Next slide. Okay. So Gideon's hiding. And this shows an ancient wine press that's been uncovered in Israel not that long ago. So you crush the grapes in the flat area. The juice flows into the hole. So the angel finds Gideon in this hole. And he says something that does not fit the context at all. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So Gideon's not clear exactly what's going on, but he knows enough to ask a good question. So he says this, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Okay, so Gideon's not clueless. He knows the angel is making some kind of joke. So Gideon is really saying, it's not my fault things are a mess. Where are God's promises? Where's our deliverance? Because he's actually hiding in the wine press. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press, unless you like a lot of chaff in your wine. And if you're hiding from your enemies, it could be that you're not really a mighty warrior. And if the country is ravaged by your enemies, maybe God isn't such a great warrior either. So Gideon is saying, you know, I've heard of this amazing God who does amazing things, but I look around me and I wonder, maybe those were just nice stories for the kids. I don't see any evidence of a God who does wonders. In fact, it's the opposite. Do you ever feel that way? Sometimes this is what life living for God actually feels like. We read the amazing stories in Scripture, deliverance, healings, angels, and meanwhile, we're so beat up, we feel like Gideon. Do you ever feel like God sent you into battle but forgot to come with you? Or that you've heard so many good things about God, but you're not seeing God at work in your life? So you spend your time hunkering down, staying safe in a hole somewhere. Because life beats us up and our enemy is real. Sometimes we find ourselves just trying to get by. So Gideon does a reasonable thing. The angel touches, uh, kind of like Thomas in the Gospels, and he asks for a sign. And when he brings meat and drink, the angel touches them with a staff and whoosh, they're consumed by fire. He asks for a sign because he understands the real story here. He gets that if the words of this angel are true, if things are about to change, and when you're talking with angels, things are already changing, it's a good idea to have some evidence, especially if you're about to start swinging swords and throwing spears. So when the sacrifice is consumed, Gideon is a little worried in the story. He knows the story of Exodus. He, he knows that he's been bargaining with Almighty God. So the angel assures him with these words. Next slide. Shalom. Don't be afraid. You are not going to die. So the word of the Lord to Gideon is peace. Literally, shalom. Don't be afraid. The same word to the disciples who are hiding behind locked doors. And it's this word that is so full of meaning, way beyond our little English word peace, which just tends to mean absence from conflict or some kind of experience of serenity. Shalom is the presence of the kingdom. It's wealth and plenty and right relationships, health, healing, wholeness, party time, because it's rest from our enemies the things that drag us down. And it's God's presence, an abundance of joy. 
So when Gideon receives that blessing, he builds an altar to the Lord and he calls it appropriately. Next slide. The Lord is shalom. Literally, Adonai shalom. When you're being beat up, this is one of the names you can pray, you can use. Adonai shalom. This is a pattern throughout the Old Testament. When God reveals something of himself, he often reveals a new name. So we have Jehovah Jireh, God our provider, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, and here in Judges, Adonai Shalom, the Lord is peace. But we still have to ask, was this angel in touch with reality? Maybe he was having a bad day. Do angels have bad days? I don't know. Because to say to a guy hiding in a hole, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, feels like a stretch. So I bet that angel was smiling and chuckling when he spoke those words. But at the same time, he knew what was coming next. Because what we're getting here is not just a word. It's a word from the Lord. It's a divine fiat. It's a word of creation. When God speaks, life happens. Things change. When God says to Moses to stretch out his hands over the waters, maybe Moses was thinking, yeah, but then what? But God's word is powerful. It's like the hammer that shatters the rock. It creates something out of nothing. This is God Almighty, El Shaddai. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He doesn't tire or grow weary. So this word is spoken to Gideon. And when it's received by faith, Gideon becomes a mighty warrior. He becomes the prophetic promise. And a few verses later, the angel of the Lord sends Gideon, Go in the strength of yours and deliver Israel. Have I not sent you? So this is another parallel to the story we're reading in John 20. God releases his word, he breathes his spirit, he creates something new in us, and he sends us out on a mission. He breathes into us his kingdom, his shalom, and then we go out and we live it and we give it away to partner with Father God as he creates shalom realities from nothing. Next slide. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So back to the fearful disciples in the upper room. The doors are locked, and suddenly Jesus is standing there among them, and his first words are these. Shalom be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side, and he says it again, in case we missed it. Shalom be with you. This word is spoken with all its meaning. God's kingdom be with you. Joy and power be with you. Wealth and abundance be with you. The power of creation and resurrection be with you. And then, as the Father sends me, so I send you. Shalom is kingdom language. Jesus is creating a new community, a new family, who are going to go out in the power of the Spirit to change the world. Just ordinary men and women, fearful, uncertain, like Gideon hiding the wine press, but transformed by this creative word. Next slide. There's another neat thing happening here. In this passage, we have Jesus speaking, the Spirit filling, and the Father sending. Pretty neat. Trinitarian text. Not that we're any closer to understanding how this works, but we see it in Scripture in various places. And another thing, this is Jesus in a physical body, but unlike any body before or since. It's a resurrection body. We see him in the Gospels. He appears where he wants to. Doors and walls don't matter anymore, but he still has scars. 
In this passage, we see he still has scars. What is that about? Maybe a couple things. Maybe first it's a message that subverts how we understand brokenness. We understand brokenness as a problem. Brokenness happens to us in life. Unless you manage to somehow stay hidden away in a wine press forever, God sees our wounds as preparation for ministry. I don't want advice from perfect people. I want to hear from those who've tried and failed and kept on going. Because life is tough, like Leonard Cohen sings, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And another thing to notice here, this is Jesus' resurrection body, right? This is the body that Jesus later carries with him into heaven, but his body still has scars. Now think about that a minute. Is Jesus perfect in his resurrection? Of course he is. And yet he still has scars. However we define perfection, it doesn't mean what we think it means. Second, in the context of the sending of Jesus, these scars are a reminder of the way we're sent. We are sent as Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent into the world in a weak and vulnerable way. He could have come with legions of angels. He could have come as a 15-foot-tall man of steel. But he came as a baby. His glory was veiled. He didn't demand worship, although it was his right as creator and God. Instead, he served and loved and healed. And because he was weak and vulnerable, but also confronted our false idols, including idols of perfection, we killed him. Or put another way, the gospel teaches us a new relationship between power and authority. Next slide. I'm making you work back there. In our world, power is authority. In God's kingdom, love and service are authority. We're sent as Jesus was sent, in the way he was sent, not to conquer and overpower our enemies, but to love and serve them, to persuade them by becoming the difference. The best symbols for us are maybe the crown of thorns or a towel and basin. Next slide. Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. The Spirit is not just any spirit, but the spirit of reconciliation, the spirit of shalom, of peacemaking. Not just peace as an inner experience, peace that is between people, between cultures, between genders, between races, between nations. And then forgiveness also has the old gospel sense that we are all rebels, all in need of mercy. And so we proclaim that God offers mercy to all who ask for it. And we stand as ambassadors saying that Jesus opened the way to God through the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 17. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old has gone. The new is here. Next slide. 
If anyone is in Christ, the old has gone. There's no more separation from God, no more male or female, Greek or Jew, white or black or red, all are one, made whole in Christ. As Paul writes, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making shalom. And this takes some work, right? It doesn't happen automatically. So John 20 is a new creation story. Out of nothing, God creates a people, a community, a resurrection people who will carry God's shalom into the world. God restores and renews creation through his people. Ordinary, broken people are changed by the power of God's spirit and then sent as Jesus was sent with God's peace. Have you had an encounter with God? Has Jesus spoken his peace over you and breathed his spirit into you? Do you know yourself and your identity as one sent by God? Or are you still hiding behind a locked door? If you're still struggling with fear or wrestling with faith or just need to know that God is with you, come to the side after the service and we'd love to pray for you. God will begin something new and he'll speak his shalom over you. Let's pray.